Hello, creeps. Oh, good morning, all you lovebirds out there, and welcome to the 230th episode of Rom Communism. I cannot believe that John and I have been at this for four years now, four years of, of warming your hearts with stories of love and revolution. How is it going today, John? You know what? I think, it, I think it's amazing. Love, like, like revolutionary struggle, is um, inexhaustible. Um, that's why we've been doing this for so long. That's why we're going to keep doing this for so long. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about today. And you know, it's, it's 230. It's not, it's not a milestone episode, but I've been feeling very accomplished with what we've done here on the show. And so for today's episode, I I picked, I picked something a little out of left field, if (laughs) you will. Um, and I chose for us. The Night Before Christmas, a Netflix film directed by Monica Mitchell. It was quite an experience on well, so many levels. Before, before, before we get into discussing today's slice of heaven, how about, how about you tell, as is the tradition of all four years of our show, tell our audience what The Night Before Christmas is really all about. The Battle of Duplin Moor took place on the 11th of August, 1332, close to the Scottish town of Perth, between the forces of King David II of Scotland, the son of Robert the Bruce, and the supporters of Edward Balliol, backed by forces of Edward III. It was the beginning of the English crown's desperate attempt to destabilise Scotland in the wake of the Treaty of Northampton that had declared Robert the Bruce the king of the nation. The battle was a disaster for the Scottish loyalists, and by the day's end, the dead lay piled in heaps upon the ground. Contemporary chronicles argue that the number of Scottish dead could have been around 15,000, shredded by English longbows and the terrifyingly well-drilled and heavily armed knights, who ended their day soaked in the blood of Scottish soldiers. It is two years later that, the, that this film, The Night Before Christmas, begins, showing us English imperialism, shorn of its blood and all of its horror. Like Sir Cole, we too have been torn out of history, though through nothing as straightforward as an encounter with a crone in the woods, we exist in a shattered teleology, watching the various simulacra of contemporary capitalist modernity play out in front of us. As Brooke says to Sir Cole, in a line that could be addressed to us all, you've become quite the binge-watcher. It would be easy to pick holes in the night before Christmas, like kicking over the sets of a play to declare the whole thing fraudulent, not really real. Yet there is something strange at work here, a potentiality that can't be erased no matter how much the film would like us to simply stop asking how much all of this is real. It creeps in, doesn't it? The unsettling conviction that none of this is the whole story. This is the unsettling potential of history, of truth, even of love. What passion hangs these weights upon my tongue? 
Just because you can't explain something logically doesn't mean it can't happen, says a character in the film. And how well we know what a benighted, fragile, and nightmarish thing the logic of capitalism truly is. The question for Brooke, what if Cole is who he says that he is? Perhaps the same is true of us. Perhaps we are, despite everything that we know, despite all of the logical arguments we've heard, perhaps we are still haunted by the spirit of communism. Perhaps still there is a dream of a world that could be free. The great doctor, revolutionary and freedom fighter, Ernesto Che Guevara, said that a revolutionary is powered by feelings of love. And despite the best efforts of capitalist culture to drown it in a tawdry display of libidinal commercialism, love is a force that can truly reshape and shatter history itself. It isn't logical, but join us as we discuss the night before Christmas. I simply can't stand this frightful heat any longer. That is one of the most beautiful things I have ever heard. I did not see any of that coming. A- absolute, as always, as our 230-episode-long history has shown us, your praises are, are works of art and total beauty on this earth. Thank you for that. <laughs> Damn, that was good. I really wish I could write praises that are that good. <laughs> Maybe if I could, I would do them here on Rom Communism. <laughs> Well, my Damn. friend. Well, my friend. Where would you like to start? Uh, well, you know, as as every episode of Rom Communism does start, we should start with the formalist tunnel of love. We should indeed, <laughs> and we have to address the um, the kind of hallmark channel propaganda that is the holiday movie. We we've talked about this a little bit. You know, we talked about uh, you know, it's a wonderful life, but. What, what do you think about the idea of like the Christmas romance? So I, I think it's I think it's really interesting the, the kind of formulations that we need to adopt in terms of the formal nature of cinema in order to achieve what I'll phrase as Christmas verite. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this gets really interesting because one of the things we see in this movie is the impact of climate change. You know, like the the shape and presence of Christmas is not what it was 40 years ago. Uh, uh, the the ever increasing warmth of our planet, the destabilization of the environment. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of movies that present themselves as being shot in America, increasingly moved up to Canada in order to evoke this kind of crisp winter small town vibe that just doesn't happen over here anymore. And I think that that reflects a larger ideological apparatus of the Christmas movie. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think so. It's increasingly become something which is not in any sense based in a, in a, in a kind of like um, very similitude, right? It is it, the Christmas yeah, film. The Christmas yeah. film is no longer mimetic cinematically. Um, Bedford Falls, you could argue, you know, at the time the film was made, did sort of exist. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it was starting to phase out of being, but I think you picked up on a really important ecological point that these things are, that they've become literally uh, fantasies. None of that snow looks particularly real, right? No. Um, so The ice we see at the lake towards the end of the film is the, the, the most rushed in digital effect 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And all of this, all of this is exacerbated. All of this is intensified by the fact that this is so obviously cinema as product, right? This, mm, this, yep. this is something that is meant to be, you meant to rent this at the same time as you meant to do all of your holiday shopping at the same time as you meant to be buying more, um, non biodegradable decorations that you'll have to keep in your house forever. Like it's, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, this film is just another thing for you to buy. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to look at what what's kind of being sold to us as the shape of the holiday on a formal level in this film. And it's not... The, the, there, there are elements of a community coming together to mutually solve problems and support each other and celebrate, but that's, that's muted and in, in the backdrop. Really, this is a cavalcade of advertisements for outfits and vehicles, as well as advertisements for certain depictions of a capitalistic, patriarchal social order. Yeah, I mean, like with a lot of American contemporary romance, it's an advert. It's an advert for certain kinds of real estate, mostly. You know, you you have that you have your ha- you have your house, but it's got a guest house as well. And I'm like, really? <laughs> is is that a is that a common relatable thing that? <laughs> And I think that's something that we'll get onto in in a bit in the formalist zone. Here is is kind of who who this is like what what this is selling us. Uh, there, there's one more formalist bit I'd like to point out, and that's that's Chekhov's sword. So our our good knight Sir Cole has a sword, as all good knights should have, minimum one sword. Uh, and and he's shown using using the sword to to chop logs and to to do knight stuff in the future where it's inappropriate. And and we get teased a couple scenes where like the, the goodly kids of the future are like, ooh, a sword. That's cool. I wish I was a knight with a sword. I wish I could use and hold that large, dangerous bladed weapon. And then we get we get a scene later on where like so he he sticks his sword into the snow and walks inside, and then a horrible snowstorm hits. And one of the girls disappears. And what is the, this is the setup for she has injured herself with the sword or somehow used the sword to get herself in trouble. Mm-hmm. But no, she's just stranded on a lake. Like th- this movie lacks the conviction necessary to commit to the uncertainty of love. And we see that in the Chekhov's sword incident. I think I, I think <laughs> you're completely correct. It is this. It, it is emblematic of the dependence upon a certain kind of formula, but without yeah. without any actual commitment to what makes that formula emotionally or even narratively satisfying. Yeah, I I would. This is the cinematic equivalent of someone who just kind of like spends their life standing in the doorway of a coffee shop, bumping into literally everyone who walks by, hoping that one of those will spontaneously generate a meet cute when in fact they're missing all of the other elements that are required for such a thing to actually happen. uh, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think to kind of flesh out why that is the case, we should engage in some chivalric discourse. <laughs> oh dear, we've been talking a lot about knights lately, haven't we? And royalty and monarchies. But before we get into that, um, should we talk about love as it relates to the passage of time? Uh, well, I mean, this is a this is a time travel romance. There's there's a kind of very well established genre of these now. Um, Mm, oh yeah. So so what do you think about how this cuz I have a theory about this. 
which is that it isn't really about traveling through time at all. Because for oh, I agree. For time travel to work, you have to have a kind of complete and coherent sense of history. This film does not know what the 1300s were like. <laughs> um you 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 mean it wasn't totally chill and everybody just kind of gathered around your pre so like they have they have the like pre-ripped pre-faded jeans equivalent of a castle in the 1300s apparently yes apparently castles were built to look decrepit yep that's that's the way that works apparently in the 1300s they had christmas trees um which uh, totally yeah they almost certainly didn't they didn't really start being popular in england till the 1600s and arguably in in the current form until the uh, 1800s um Mm -hmm. it's it's very weird i i got sort of slightly obsessed with trying to to like spot the anachronism but like (laughs) but this is what i mean right we could kick we could kick over the set we could kick out we could poke holes and go oh it's not real but the point is of course it isn't what 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 this is is about this is not a film about time travel. This is a film about kind of imaginative fantasies, right? So you're not traveling in space. You're traveling ideologically. Yes, I, I completely agree. I, I also feel that there's an element here that love requires time, mm-hmm. right? You, you need time to get to know someone, time to be with them, time to understand them and how they move through the world and how they respond to you. And time has never, I, I think, in modern memory been such a commodity for, for the working people of this world, right? Like m- many of us, almost everyone I know, to, to be honest, works at least two jobs. You know, we, we're, we, we're turning all of our passions into side hustles. We're grinding constantly out of necessity, not out of uh, some good, good-natured drive to do better or whatever would be sold our way. And I think part of this film is this ideological reflection of, oh, what if, what if we just had more time? Because our so our our protagonist right like our our protagonist is Vanessa Hudgens uh, who plays Brooke, and Brooke is a school teacher in small town America. And if you know anything about being a, a elementary school teacher in small town America, or I think she's a high school school teacher, there, no breaks, no breaks. That is not a calm, restful job where you get plenty of time off. That, that that is that is an all hands on super hardcore type of work. Yeah. And this this film the the time travel that's happening here is a, a kind of as you were saying an ideological time travel where we're time traveling into an ideological vision of our present wherein this time exists and the kind of capitalistic neoliberal order doesn't have to be upset in order to achieve that. Yeah, I mean Brooke even says this right at the beginning of the film to to another character. That's all it is. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. That's all this is, right? And the fantasy is not that you meet the cute guy who's from the 14th century. The fantasy is that you have a week off before Christmas. <laughs> that's that's the, <laughs> yeah. That's the truly outrageous fantasy. <laughs> I I couldn't agree more. So if we want to talk about another outrageous fantasy, should we talk about the monarchy? But um. Ah, we should. And we should talk about one of the most persistently weird bits of the American cultural imagination, which is it's like... Just baffling. Baffling Anglophilia. What did we... we, What is the founding mythological conceit of my country if it's not the casting down of the British crown? Sorry, it's always weird when this stuff pops up for me because like... 
under all ideological auspices for what this country is, shouldn't not caring about that be like one of the things? Yeah, you, you're free. You're free of this. But then, right? You're, you're free of the kind of great nightmare of history that weighs upon the brain like a kind of nightmare for, for, for all of us who have to kind of put up with the accumulated pressure of a thousand years of, of monarchy squashing down upon our brains. But like, you, you, it's, it's sort of like watching, watching people outside of that going, no, I want to turn. <laughs> right. Oh, isn't that fun? Doesn't it look neat? She's got a silly hat. And I, I think that, that that's important because I think it reflects two very salient things. And the first is a deeper historical truth. Uh, uh, this, this is the deep magics that Aslan remembers. But when the United States, uh, the, the colonies at the time, decided to uh, fight the British, a lot of that was business interest. That wasn't a principled drive for human freedom. A lot of that was simply economic leaders making decisions about what would be best for them financially. And a lot of Americans who were working class and poor and forced into positions on the periphery where they were always like used to engage in battles with the indigenous population and be part of the colonial effort and be part of that genocide didn't want anything to do with this war. It was essentially the first of many modern bosses wars that have happened in this country. And so that that reflects an underlying problem where, yes, the monarchy was rejected, but a lot of the power simply ch- the power structures remained. They, they simply rebranded. And I think it goes into our current moment where like it, it, it's, it's crass and comically oversimplicated to, re- to refer to like anything in America as being equivalent to a monarchy. You know, people, people talk about the Kardashians as American royalty or they talk about. Um, Apple and Amazon as as American kingdoms and and, and monarchies and ways and, and they have similar power structures in certain respects, but also completely completely not. So I think a lot of the American vision of what monarchy is is simply reduced to like the politics of reality TV, like like it's Real Housewives of of England. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, Real Housewives of Buckingham Palace. The, the kind of pageantry, the brand, as it were, is what this film is obsessed with. It's obsessed with the brand. But what the, what the monarchy, what heraldry, what pageantry, what the aristocracy is about, is about the accumulation and safeguarding of capital. Simple as that. that that's what it's about. The, the crown's assets in this country are uh, in, into the high billions. They're the, yeah. they're the biggest private landowner of the entire country. Um, after I think after the army, it might be the other way around. But so it's like the it seems from the outside looking in, the American response to royalty or to to knighthood to to, to aristocracy is sort of like people getting seduced by the brand and being yeah. unaware of what actually underpins all of it. It yeah, it's decoupled from the material realities of what the crown is, and you hear. A lot of Americans, really, especially Americans who've moved and become residents of the UK, like, like to like to fall into the argumentation that looks at the crown as a business and be like, oh, well, the tourism dollars generated by the monarchy yield X to the British public and the, the monarchy has investments and there are dividends paid back to the public. And that all of that completely ignores the fact that those business activities rely on the theft of just 
a, a historically unthinkable amount of wealth from the Irish people, from the people of England itself, from Wales, from Scotland, and indeed, literally the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because suddenly people go, oh, you can talk about the economics of it, but you just think the maths comes out in the right way. You think, you know, yep. uh, you think those the, the world's largest diamond stolen and put into the into the imperial crown of Britain. You think that's worth it for for what it represents? You think there are trade offs that, mm-hmm. that, that and really that's what all, all of that is about, right? It's about people like it because they go, well, monarchy is good business, <laughs> right? Yes. And and I think that, you know, this ties into the romance of the show, too, because I think that there's there's a fantasy at play here with the monarchy, right? Like, oh, what if a what if a noble would come sweep me off my feet and take me to the castle? And I think there's 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 kind of a there's a material underpinning to that, right? It's the it's the fantasy of material security. But it's being delivered not through some kind of realistic means of achievement. It's being treated as a complete and utter fantasy. Yes, absolutely. And I think that means we should probably talk about uh, our knight in question here. Oh, oh, let's let's do it. So as 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 romantic leads go, what do we think about Cole? Um, so, so in our in our romantic notes for today's episode, in the poems that you and I exchanged by by mail, perfumed with with love and mystery, I, I refer to uh, the good Sir Cole as a knight in search of a mommy. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I think that is extremely true. Little 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 adult baby Cole isn't looking for a lover; he's looking for a mom to take to take care of him because he's a little boy he's a little boy he's he's peter panning pretty hard right now and there's so many times where like you know vanessa hudgens has the has the look of like oh uh, shucks that's my guy and he's a big doofus but i love him for reasons which are not well explained Um, oh, and of course, yeah. in, in line with what you're saying, there's there's a complete absence of sex in this film. It's, oh, oh yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, it's completely delibidinized romance, um, and like in in the chivalric tradition, you know, in the kind of like courtly love idea, like all of that was as a way of kind of mediating and structuring kind of like eroticism, right? Desire. Um, because it's that which which made love so powerful, but mm-hmm. th- this is this is there is there is no hint of not even sex, but like no hint of like erotic desire at play here. We we so like th- there's something really weird going on here, and that's th- there's kind of this inherent infantilization that comes with this kind of uh, cishet masculinity, right? Cole has to simultaneously be rugged physically fit and capable but also a complete child in in every respect that would return to him any agency like we we get we get we get one of the classic rom-com scenes that we've talked about maybe 200 times in all 230 episodes we've done where the the male love interest uh takes a shower goes swimming an excuse happens for him to have no shirt Mm -hmm. And, and of course, Cole is chiseled, right? You know, he's got the Adonis bod and and Brooke is, is swooning. 
But the framing and the appraisal there isn't of a lustful attraction for the body of the other. It's it's delibidinized. It's it's what you expect. Of course he's hot. He has to be. Your love interest would be perfectly physically attractive. There there would never be of course they would fall into every conceivable uh, like hegemonic norm when it came to beauty standards. It's it's not to signal to us that Brooke has a physical attraction, right? A libidinal desire. It's to signal to us that he is correct. Yes. He, you know, he is, yeah. he is correct and right in appearance. Yeah, this is, he has, this is the right shape and it doesn't matter that this is, you know, I, you know, obviously um, it, it might feel like we're making quite a big deal out of this, but like the whole, the whole point of the kind of romance is the idea of, uh, love and desire having a kind of universal category. But there's nothing here. There is there is no, no love and desire here. It's it's a it's a completely empty signifier. Right? It's it's right. just all, yeah. all of the parts are right. It looks like you're it's supposed to. And it it's it, it it's kind of like completely vacuous and empty. And it's like there there and is and I think this is a bigger problem with the film's politics as a whole, which is like in the idea of Christmas, there is something potentially quite radical, right? A genuinely yep. universal category of kind of like emancipati- em- emancipation of, of abundant jubilee for everybody. You know, the gift economy that kind of transcends the relentless yep. grind of capitalism itself. But what what is there? There's a Christmas ornament and, oh, somebody gave their mittens away. And that's all you get. <laughs> That that is that is it. That is all. And I I feel like I have to say this every other episode on rom communism. But this is why I prefer a good gothic romance. Give me give me a messed up little monster man falling falling in love with some little gremlin witch, and it's it's always no matter how silly, no matter how over the top, no matter how base, it is always more emotionally complicated and emotionally aware. And just just infinitely superior to this because the Gothic inherently puts us in conversation with the other. It forces us to the periphery. It makes us widen our perspective. This 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 is just sedate. This is a tranquilizer of a film. Absolutely, absolutely, and it it comes out in every aspect of Cole as character. Yes, yeah. We we should we should talk about our once and future cop. Uh oh, good grief! Yeah, do, maybe you can kind of contextualize this for people. Yeah, so Cole, Cole is a knight in the 1300s, which, as as you lovingly explained in your precy, which was brilliant, by the way, uh, is is a career soaked in blood. So naturally, when he travels to the future, he has an, an affinity for being a cop, right? It's hinted at the movie that when Cole settles in the future, he'll become a police officer, um, which feels somehow cosmically appropriate to his character. But I think I think it's again, it's it's completely unnecessary to put that in the film, right? Like, like it's a subtle hint that's played to us that achieves nothing. And, and it only serves to further encrust this movie, like, like some things sunken at the bottom of the sea with just more detritus. Yeah. It, it like, it, it accumulates. This is like geologically ideological, right? There are, there are, yeah. there are layers here. And like the great thing about romance uh, as a form is love is this form love is this kind of potential right that kind of shatters and reconfigures not just interpersonal relationships but the entire social field 
right? And all you need to do to look for evidence of that is look at any Jane Austen novel, right? That's what that's what it's about. Yep. It's about the problem of the social field. That's why the novels are so incredible. But this is like, no, uh, no matter how the individuals might feel, all you're going to do is reinscribe the current social order, but with even more violence. Right. And I, I think I think like a lot of this comes out, too, with with the thing that Cole is almost as much, if not more fascinated with than Brooke. And that's Amazon's Alexa. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Like this is and I think that this this horrifically feeds back into this vision of Cole as the infantilized cishet male. Right. Because what what would in theory be the ideal partner for, for that individual? It's not it's not a living, breathing woman who perhaps will have agency at some day in the future. It's a machine. It's something that just reproduces this. This It's a font of eternal domestic labor. Yes. You ask Alexa to do something and it is done for you. No questions. Yes, absolutely. Um and until and of course you have no real way of communicating because communication is completely impossible because you don't really know what this other is, right? Yep. To the point where he puts it in the freezer. I think it's supposed to be funny. I think that's supposed to be funny. Yeah, it's, I think it's there's a lot of bits where I think there's supposed to be Cole being charmingly out of touch with the time frame he's in now, but it just winds up being upsetting. It's it's upsettingly infantile the decisions he makes. Mm-hmm. Like he should have killed Alexa with a sword for being a demon. You I, know, like I mean, like, that, like there should have been some least, tension. That at least would have been like a good payoff, a good fish out of water bit. Mm-hmm. You we only get the standard stuff where it's like, oh, forsooth, mine lady, why dost thou driveth this metaline carriage? What hath no no horse? And like that's that's all his dialogue for the first like three fourths of the movie. I've got to be honest, you, that was better dialogue than the film. <laughs> I would so this movie this movie would have automatically been a flawless ten if he actually would have been speaking some kind of mid English dialect. Uh, yes, and, and it's, yeah, and, it's yeah. and it's and it's not just he's referring to things as like what is this talking box? It, it's just he literally can't speak with anyone because his version of English is closer to German than it is what we speak today. <laughs> or 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 it's like closer to Chaucer. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. Or like go really hard with the time travel and like se- send a Pictish man to the future or something like table flip. Any any final thoughts? Um, I would I would pose kind of a question to to the audience, and that's how do we find a romance situated as we are as beings in history? One of the things in this film that I find to be really troubling is they set Cole as being a knight from Norwich, right in England. Um, however, they don't film they don't film there. I guess they couldn't find a good castle anywhere in Norwich to shoot around, so they film in Tillamore, in Ireland. So, so they, they this is a psychogeographic reinscription of of the violence, oppression, and genocide of the Irish peoples by English forces throughout time, reflected here in our rom com, and where we're in the same temporal sea that produces these moments, uh, a frightful thing to reflect upon. But I think reflect we must. Brilliant. How about you? Um, no, I, I I think that's a brilliant point to end it on. I think. Um. I think the the question I would raise to wrap up is 
the role of fantasy in the construction of our sense of history and the actual importance of trying to get beyond that of digging our hands back into the back into the blood of history you know finding the truth of it rather than the kind of rubber sword and cardboard castle um and plastic christmas ornament might be kind of like peel away the skin of the ideological present to find the sort of uh the the red stream of history that is you know the inextinguishable source of radical potential I think that's a perfect place to conclude this, the 230th episode of Rom Communism. Thank you for joining us, everyone, uh, for, for this for this episode. We're starting the holiday season a bit early, but, you know, we can't really escape the orbit. The black hole-like gravitational pull of these Christmas romance comedies. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode next week, as always. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pasolini Files. Intrepid investigator Dr. John Greenway is on the ground in the Vatican exploring yet another interesting turn in the life of Pier Paolo Pasolini. We go live right now with John. How's it going? Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, super excited to be here. We are in the uh, secret underground cinema attached to the uh, Vatican Library. Um, it's very exclusive. Nobody, nobody's been allowed in here for a very long time. Um, <laughs> and this is where uh, some of the most controversial, but also some of the most praised films in uh, Catholic cinematic history have been stored. Among them, this film. Uh, by perhaps the most unlikely of directors to ever be given uh, artistic and even religious blessing by Catholic uh, spiritual authorities. This is where they store Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew. I was just as shocked as you to find out that The Gospel According to St. Matthew by Pier Paolo Pasolini is in the Catholic Criterion closet. Uh, it's it's honestly remarkable. Um, quite a lot of other very different stuff in here, which we won't go into that right now. <laughs> none none of none of the other films in that archive could be nearly as important as what we discussed today. You're absolutely correct. Um, but whilst whilst people would expect only the Vatican to only give its kind of assent or blessing to the most overt Catholic propaganda. Uh, the Vatican actually has 45 great movies, um, of which uh, the sister podcast to this show, Horror Vanguard, has talked about uh, more than one of them. It, yes, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard their episodes on It's a Wonderful Life, and uh, I got a rough cut of the lost episode on Nosferatu, an unexpected inclusion in the Catholic's cinema crypt. Um, so I, I suppose now that we've both, we've both seen... Um, we both seen the gospel according to St. Matthew. Uh, what do you think about it? How, how is it? How has it changed the way that you think about Pasolini? I, I think this is incredibly important because in order to unravel the mystery of Pier Paolo Pasolini's tragic, unsolved, and incredibly Patreon-subscribable murder, we need to talk about 
the formal aspects of this movie <laughs> and, and how, how they shape our opinion of Pasolini on this, our true crime podcast. And for me, one of the biggest shocks is that it occurred to me that there must be two types of guys in the world. There are guys who think of Pier Paolo Pasolini as, as kind of the, the mad uh, pervert of filth that created Salo, uh, a, a movie that's a blazing salvo straight to the heart of the world in which we live and there's another kind of guy who know Pier Paolo Pasolini as the guy who made a really nice movie about the gospel. Um, and it, I, I have never seen two diverse selves encountered in a single hole before. It's just incredible. It's uh, It was shot on 100,000 meters of film, um, which if, if all of it had been released, it would have a runtime of, I think, about three hours of viewing time. And was then cut down to about two, just over two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose it's maybe worth. We should talk a little bit about the formal qualities of the film. How how would you contrast it to Salo? One of the biggest shocks for me is that you can still see the hand of Pasolini, no, no matter how wide the gap is between the nature of the content of two of his films there are shots and framing compositions in this that that feel like a set and costume change for for solo they they feel the the visual language of the gospel according to saint matthew has moments that are identical to solo or 120 days of sodom and that is shocking but i think in kind of this Burkean way, it, it evoked in me moments of near religious sublime encounters. The, the, the sparse and barren nature, the real lived-in qualities of this film allow you to encounter the text of the gospel in a way that I find to be incredibly intriguing. What, what are some of your thoughts? It is... Um it's very, very uh, kind of old-fashioned in a way, right? It's very traditionally framed mm-hmm. and shot. Um, Pasolini experiments a little bit more in this one. Um, he shoots it very much in the style of a documentary. But the framing is very heavily influenced by um, uh, Giotto, Romanesque sculpture, um, Piero della Francesca, uh, Byzantine paintings of, of, of Christ and religious art. Um, so he takes these very kind of antiquated aesthetic gestures and puts them into super contemporary cinematic language. And there's something that we should really talk about here, which is a continuation of a really profound theme in Pasolini's work, which is about the relationship to the masses and to radical politics. Um, this is... Do you think this is a revolutionary representation of, of Christ? So I think that this is a really interesting position that the film puts us in, because as we all know, Pier Paolo Pasolini was mysteriously killed in an event described differently by multiple eyewitnesses in a way that we're still exploring the mysteries behind on this, our Patreon-funded true crime podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing that's really exciting for me is surprising sources come into agreement about the gospel uh, according to St. Matthew. It's often described by literally the Vatican as being the most accurate cinematic depiction of the events of the gospel. 
And at the same time, Pasolini intentionally tried to present Jesus the Revolutionary, which it, which is one of the kind of, I, I guess I'll phrase this as trope depictions of Christ in media. What are your, How do you kind of approach this as someone who's currently right now physically in the Vatican secret film archive looking for evidence about the life of the mysterious Pier Paolo Pasolini? So firstly, Pasolini is not uh, a Catholic. Pasolini mm-hmm. is not is not a believer, um, and and Pasolini is an unabashed public communist, mm-hmm. um, and not an orthodox, uh, like certainly not traditionalist member of the Communist Party, but a, a committed Marxist uh, invested in revolutionary politics. It is genuinely shocking it's genuinely shocking that a lot of his other films are quite heavily censored they're very heavily criticized by the catholic and right-wing christian democratic press in italy at the time for their uh, explicit sexuality their attacks on kind of bourgeois Mm -hmm. morality um and you know this he described himself as you know this working class pornographer uh who made salo makes the most accurate depiction of christ and there's a really interesting point of contrast we can draw out between this film and perhaps the other really famous, much more contemporary uh, adaptation, which is Gibson's Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. So and this is something I kept thinking about. Please continue. So regardless of what you think, right, let's let's put aside the kind of emotive issue of religion for a second and think about them mm-hmm. strict, strictly as stories. For Mel Gibson, in his in his story, which is, um, you know, was shown in the in the Vatican, was shown to the Pope at the time. The Pope said, "This this is how it was." For Mel Gibson's film, the most important fact about Christ is the kind of torture and suffering, right? It kind of yes. fet- it fetishizes the 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 it's it's essentially a, a spiritually inflected Gorno film, right? It's, it's absolutely yeah. It's, it could, because it, that's what it thinks the most important thing about Christ's character is. For Pasolini, the most important thing about Christ is what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, precisely because the implication is, if you take seriously what is said, you necessarily have a revolution in your social order. Without question. And I think this is incredibly important. I I saw Passion of the Christ when it came out in theaters in 2004. And I I was astonished at the crowd that I watched it with because there were nice suburban mothers and their young children. There were elderly couples. It was very dressed up. It was very conservative. And and I recall that so starkly because this this is 2004. We're, We're cranking out the Saw films now. And in, in my in-theater experience for seeing some of the Saw movies is vacant, sleazy goths and, and metalheads and suspicious old men, right? And a 2004 movie focusing on Gorno and violence and torture and, and mutilation and perversion to be celebrated the way that it is, I, I think it reflects so much of that current cultural moment. And I think that this is what is truly shocking, because I think your point about putting aside temporarily the emotive issues of Christianity and Catholicism, right, and just looking at these as textual objects, right, what are they attempting to communicate to us? What are they attempting to get us feel? How are they trying to get us to think and act? 
I I was just just blown away. Watching the gospel according to St. Matthew is a lot like being in a long and contemplative state of prayer. It's it's very it's wildly uplifting. It causes a lot of unexpected inner turmoil, right? The blood rises in the way that uh Pasolini frames and depicts the kind of speech of Christ and his uh associates. Yeah, it's because Christ here speaks like a like a like a radical organizer, like a like a union. Oh man, yeah, like a like a politician, right? But like a so, someone who's trying to kind of like inflame the passions. But like it's filmed in this kind of Italian neorealist style, um, and is maybe the, one of the high points of Italian neorealism. Where the the point is, and we, you know, this is a big complex question of like pointing a camera at something. Will that get you to the truth? Or, mm-hmm. by the very act of creating the image, have you in some way interfered with truth? And the, the neo-realist argument is that you can get at truth if you strip away the kind of, like, the, the facade of cinema, right? You, so it's filmed in, in a documentorial style. None of the actors are professional. Um, there is no real script. There's just, there's just the Bible. Um, and my favorite moments, even though Pasolini is hugely critical in retrospect of these two moments, uh, the big one is Jesus walking on water, and the mm-hmm. feeding and the feeding of the five thousand. And like in a, in a worse film, these would be like there'd be like a big moment on the score. It'd be super dramatically yep. filmed. But um, Pasolini even said that he thought he was t- he had lent too far into that, and it was he said like it, it wasn't it wasn't you know done in the right style. But Jesus just walks out of the distance on the water and it's filmed so matter-of-factly that it kind of like it's 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 shocking in how understated it is i i this is a moment that i really wanted to talk about the 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 scene of christ walking on water right because christ is incredibly judicious about the use of to, to get into something that i want to talk about in just a minute his superpowers right like in filmic depictions, I often think of uh, another film that I find to be quite interesting because it has Vincent Price in it, um, The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, is it's a spectacle of special effects, right? Everything that Moses or, or I guess God through Moses accomplishes is is just, just the, the, the pinnacle of effects work. Right. It's meant to, to put you in a state of awe by, by how loud and visible and all encompassing the majesty of it is. And I was very much braced for something similar. And again, to contrast this with the Passion of the Christ, you know, like that's also very special effects heavy. I was expecting something similar. I was expecting it to have the same orchestral swell, dramatic camera angles. But in the scene where Christ walks on water, it, he it's it lasts two, maybe three minutes. And it's mostly just the apostles in their little rowboat being like, oh, is that, is that Jesus? What's going on? And Jesus is like, oh yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm walking on water. It's fine. And it just kind of ends. And it's so, it's so understated that it forces you to reinterrogate the nature of the miraculous and how we have encoded and expected ourselves to see and encounter the divine. Because we associate the divine with incredible loudness on a cultural level. But here Pasolini is suggesting that, no, the divine could be loud, but it could also be something that you see out of the corner of your eye and you're forced to reinterrogate because you can't 
easily slotted into an expected way of knowing. I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And like, we should, we should um, talk about the fact that like, there are no professional actors. Giorgio Gambon yep. uh, is in this I, film. I, I remember when you pulled out the file in the secret Vatican Pasolini film archive and read that to me. I was blown away because I did not notice that while watching the movie. A young that, that, uh, Giorgio Gambon, oh, yes. Yeah. A, a Gambon as the Apostle Philip. What do we make of this? Um, well, it's the whole the whole thing is that the neo realist said that like not everybody could play a character, but certain but you could play you could be the person that you were born to be on screen, right? So who does who does Pasolini work with? He works with the same people he worked with. In all of his other films, he works with working class people, poor people, people from some. It's filmed in one of the most deprived areas of Italy at the time, right? Right, right in the in the heel of the boot of the country. Um, like he and he just uses farmers, you know, tr- lorry drivers, people. Mm-hmm. Just go, hey, can you stand there for a bit? <laughs> um, and of course, there's one other very important piece of casting we should talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really important that we have these kind of like non-actors playing playing these roles because so many shots in this movie are people having emotive facial expressions, right? They're cracking smiles or little smirks or, or they're just looking at the world around them. And and there's so much subtle movement in this film mm-hmm. that adds it, it's, it's weight by way of silence. And one of the moments that I find to be really endearing and really meaningful is the casting of the older Virgin Mary. So Virgin Mary towards the end of Christ's tale is uh, Pasolini's mother. Yeah. What do you think about that? So I think I think the crass reading of that is something we can reject. I, I think we can reject this kind of reading where it's, oh, it's, it's Pasolini elevating himself because if his mother is the Virgin Mary, therefore he is Christ. And Christ, the director of the film, I, I think I think we can discard that. I think that that's not particularly useful. What, what I find to be interesting is that as kind of like an act of compassion, you, you know, to to hire to hire your mother to to play in in a sense in this in this tradition and this religious tradition especially to to be kind of like the ultimate mother. There, there, there's something very somber and loving about that, right? Like a lot of the Virgin Mary's presence is meant to force us into a position of being contemplative about the, the space that maternity takes in society and what a lovely way to reintegrate it into the film on a very literal level. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think, I think it's a genuinely, there's something, there's something slightly tragic about it because you can't help but read it in those terms. You know, there's the Mm -hmm. famous, the famous line, of Christ's where, you know, the, the apostles say, oh, you, that, your mother's outside. And he goes, well, who, who is my mother? You know, where, where are they? Mm-hmm. Be- because it's about the universalism of Jesus as a religious figure. And the same is true of the artist, right? The artist is, and Pasolini was very aware of this, was trying to do something that had a kind of universal function. Um, there's one final thing we should talk about as we as I wrap up my visit in the Vatican archives, which is to talk about the fact that um, this film is is made by a Marxist and is dedicated to a former Pope. Um, yeah. 
what do you what, I mean how, what do you think of this how do we respond to this so I encounter a lot of people in my life that kind of discredit the position of if not religion entirely uh, Christianity slash Catholicism specifically in the place of the left right um, uh, often often drawing on the kind of I guess one of the more more famous quotes of Marx, right? Religion is the opening to the masses, or at least attributed to Marx. Um, and I, I think that that is an oversimplification that that is attempting to reduce the world. And especially in our current moment, it opens the door to like, we see where the new atheists all went. You know, like I, I remember the heyday of the new atheist revival to, to use a parlance that would make them shudder. You know, like they paraded themselves as bastions of logical thought and a kind of realistic appraisal of social relationships and resisting of, of you know, regressive ideologies. Mere minutes later, all of them are Islamophobic, racist, white supremacist figureheads and the even the final holdouts of their ilk are still in denial that they're like MAGA celebrities right now. I, Which is, oh, go on, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, so this was enormously controversial. This was hugely controversial. Pasolini um, was, like, like I say, an incredibly high-profile Marxist. It was seen as, like, shocking to have, like, so a lot of people got very kind of um, caught up in the in the process of classifying the film, right? Is it, is it, um, uh, has he has he suddenly become a Christian? Is it is it a Christian film? Is it a, is it a Marxist mm-hmm. film? Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> Pasolini, Pasolini was very kind of prickly. He was very polemical, um, and he he I think was kind of like shocked by the response that it got because I think really only only an atheist could have told the story honestly enough. For it to have the oh, power, power that it do, did, right? Um, so, uh, here's a little story for you. On the 26th of November, 1964, in the periodical Via Nuevo, Pasolini answered a letter from a Umberto Rosso of Genoa who argued there can be nothing in common between Marxists and non-Marxists. Um, Pasolini dismissed the notion. Uh, he said, I want you to consider that the great majority of the Marxist leadership are of bourgeois origin. Many of them, as young or very young people, were fascists, even activists, and so on. Thus, they were non-Marxists, and they became Marxists. You would not allow any non-Marxist to become a Marxist? If you do not make such an allowance, you will find yourself a thousand times in a thousand contradictory situations, mortified by the reality of the facts." There was another there was another article that month in the official church magazine uh, Catholic Civilization, and it was called "The Impossibility of Dialogue with the Communists." Um, Pasolini said, "He who has fears of being destroys of being destroyed has a bad conscience, and he feels that he deserves destruction. Only fragile Marxists fear being destroyed by a dialogue with the church." and cling to their old positions to be reassured. 
So the whole point was was not that like one side is right or the other, but that Pasolini was interested in the in the process of contradiction, because it's through those contradictions, it's through that dialogue that you actually advance understanding. I couldn't agree with this more. I, I think this is incredibly important and it's worth interrogating. And there there is so much more out there and closing out there in the world and closing ourselves off to these histories. These ways of knowing, and especially these these people who've done incredible work, like like I, I often reflect on the fact that there are like Catholic workers who have done more to better the world than I could ever dream of doing, or at least at my current standpoint, you know, and that's they're Catholics. <laughs> so as as someone who is currently in the Pasolini archive, what what do you kind of make of this, make of these contradictions, make of specifically Pasolini's contribution to this as someone who, by all accounts and accounts that you can hear more about on our Patreon account or by subscribing at PayPal or coffee or mailing us bitcoins, <laughs> how, how do you feel? Because by some of those accounts, Pasolini was killed for his political activism. I mean, this is this is the thing, right? He he described himself as as the most ancient of ancient and the most modern of moderns, right? He he saw it as part of his kind of like artistic role and function to dive into the contradictions of of any given social order, but always on the side of kind of authentic and honest documentation of what he found there, um, and. You know, screenings of this film are usually controversial. Pasolini was attacked all over Europe for for either being a communist dis- distorting the Bible or for being someone who had sold out to Catholicism and organized religion. And he'd, and he'd done neither. And it's that which makes him such a distinctive artist. And it's that which got him into so much trouble. Thank you for, for delving deep into the Vatican's secret Criterion Film Archive and digging up this piece of the mystery of Pier Paolo Pasolini's tragic, unsolved, mysterious hashtag death. <laughs> Thank you to the members of our audience, the Pier Paolo Pasolini People Project for finding Pasolini's answers. Hashtag truth seekers. We look forward to our next Patreon exclusive web episode subscription fee for our true crime Pasolini podcast. That was amazing. That was was the worst thing I've ever said. (laughs) Many scientists believe that another world is watching us this moment. Good evening out there, all of my fellow Maquis Raiders. We're beginning the transmission of the latest edition of the Maquis Raider Radio. I'm one of your co-pilots, Ash, joined as always by my navigator and science officer, John the Liquor Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Delighted, delighted to be back here, providing more documentary evidence of the ongoing universal imperialism, violence, and hypocrisy of the Federation. 
And it's, it's sad to say, but our job just keeps getting easier because today we're talking about the events documented in past tense parts one and two. It's, it's honestly, honestly a shocking, a shocking bit of history. And I think we should talk by, we should start by talking about how the Federation treats time and particularly messing around with the foundational structure of revolutionary struggle, which is history itself. That was, that was shockingly beautiful for our joke Star Trek podcast. Thank you. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about what do you think about the time travel as a form bit? So I always think this is really interesting when time travel pops up in kind of the serialized televisual media like Star Trek, right? Like, because it has a lot of inherent limitations. Because if your entire show is based on time travel as a concept, like Doctor Who, you you can kind of either embrace the, the, the causal chaos that that represents, or you can just ignore it entirely and just have time adventures. Uh, Star, Star Trek finds itself kind of very precariously balanced in the flow of time because this is very hard-boiled science fiction, right? Like St- Star Trek is very rooted. It tries to stay very grounded in believable, realistic technologies, right? Realistic there in quotes, sure, but realistic nonetheless. And the time travel episodes always frustrate that a lot. Uh, what, are you, what are some of your thoughts about time travel as like a formal quality of Trek? Well, I think this is where um, treating hi- tr- history gets treated as a resource, right? It's something that you can travel through. It's something you can use. It's something that you can kind of bend to your will. Um, but it underscores the fact that time itself doesn't move, but we move through and experience time in particular ways, right? It's the ultimate dream is to be able to kind of move multidimensionally through time itself. Uh, But it's done in such a way that it turns history into fuel for, Mm -hmm. for the Federation's own present. Yes. And the big example of this, the big example of this is obviously first contact. Another, another really strong example of this, I think of his trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Which I think is, is in my opinion, it's the best time travel episode in all of Trek. Yes. Because instead of, instead of burning their own, like the kind of intra-Trek history as fuel, it burns fandom as fuel. Yes, right? abso- absolutely. Because it becomes about the participation within something rather than yep. the co-option of something. Exactly. It's it's about what Trek has become up to the point of DS9. It's, it's kind of an exploration of... Both it's both a fan like a fan wish fulfillment thing, right? Like Cisco keeps talking about like, oh, what would it be like to shake James T. Kirk's hand? Um, yeah. So like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, what was whoa, what was that? Oh, we're being shot at by by those filthy Federation dogs. <laughs> In no way is this a transition because the mail came and I had to sign for a package. Absolutely is, not. The very idea. We're in deep space right now, fighting, fighting for the freedom of our people. Um, and speaking of that, uh, you can go to deep space, fight for the freedom of. Well, you can you can help us by going to Patreon.com/slash/HorrorVanguard and uh, supporting the show. That'd be great. Thank you a lot. Uh, when, when we when we hit <laughs> 22 billion subscribers, I will buy everyone a spaceship, and we can all fly in space together and have a little fun. 
Uh, we really need to start keeping track of all of the things you promised <laughs> as various Patreon milestones. Well, cr- 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 cross my fingers that we don't make first contact with intergalactic civilization and then I wake up with 22 billion subscribers because then I have a lot of spaceships to buy. Um, but like Trials and Tribulations, I think, is a wonderful exploration of kind of what it means to time travel with media because we can kind of time travel with Trek, right? You can go back and watch the original Trek. You know, like it puts you in an awkward temporal position because you can't go watch original Trek anymore. You know, there's there's no way to watch those episodes air for the first time on TV ever again, but you can still watch them. You can still make contact through time. It's just changed. And Trials and Tribulations embraces that. It embraces the kind of sloppy nature of of time travel and media and fandom and cultural history both inside the show and out past tense doesn't quite doesn't quite do that well we should talk about we should talk about what past tense does do and to get into this should did hey did did ds9 predict 2020 did it did did the simpsons predict ds9 did horror vanguard predict time travel? Ugh. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we have to talk about this, right? Because it's uh, yes. it's set in the twenty twenties. Like, what do we think of this this discursive uh, symptom, this repetition of the idea that actually well, we know, certain things we are know from our own experiences of time travel that the only thing Star Trek actually accurately predicted was the Irish reunification of twenty twenty four. Oh, oh no! Ah, we're being shot at again! Oh, and no way did the, con- the call's connection drop. We're having comms issues. Comms are down! Worf, fix the comms! Okay, woo, oh, that's another another hairy encounter with uh, the Federation there. Woo. That's alright, that's alright, we're gonna make it. And our supply run to deliver Maki medical equipment to one of the outlying colonies. Um, but no, I think uh, <laughs> the, predic- the prediction is, is really interesting, right? Because we know that Star Trek only made one accurate prediction in the entire run of the show. And that's when Data predicted the Irish reunification of 2024. Yes, absolutely. Um, the rest of it's been really speculative. Um, but I think that the prediction discourse, yeah, and I'm just going to kind of come out and say it, and this might be one of the hottest takes I've had on the show, but prediction discourse is reactionary. Ooh, because. Let- Yes, I lay it, lay it out, <laughs> lay this take out. Because it entirely surrenders our agency and the flow of history, right? If if uh, DS9's two-part episode, Past Tense, predicted the events we're living in today, that means that, one, nothing could have ever changed where we are now. And that also carries the implication, implication that nothing can change the future because other moments in the future are also then being predicted by media. Right. And, and that, that renders us without agency in the flow of time that renders us waiting for because if, if they've accurately predicted the state of the world in 2020, then they've also accurately predicted the arrive or the arrival of our historic future savior, Captain Cisco. Right. So so we we must then be be passive and wait for the predicted arrival of goodness in the world instead of like doing the work and works necessary. And I think that. It also overlooks what actually is happening because this 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 wasn't foreseeing a dark day in America's future, right? It was looking out to the present. It's the same thing we have with RoboCop. It's the same thing we have to the, with The Simpsons. 
These things aren't trying to predict a horrible future. They're making commentary on a horrible present. A horrible present we're now decades in the future of, so it's only louder now. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are your thoughts? Are my takes too hot here? Am I perhaps being a bit too fiery with this one? No, I think it's a really good point because it reflects an implicit idea about the negation or the abandonment of historical agency. Right. If you go, well, this was all predicted, there's very little that you can actually do. Yeah, I agree. Right. If you if there's like it, like you don't need to say anything more. Right. That that's it. It's all it's all been predicted. What what else is there? What else is there? How else are we supposed to uh, deal with the current situation that we find ourselves in? I, I, I couldn't agree more. And especially as cultural critics, like it's great for clickbait. If, if you say, did did the Simpsons predict the death of Queen Elizabeth? Question mark. Like that's great. That's great for for having people click on on your your clickhole.com article. But like it's not good for actual discourse about media, actually talking about what things are being represented, how they're being represented and why. It, it abnegates our responsibility to understand the article the art that we create because it's just it's just a random like like attempt to prophesize some future moment and not an actual interrogation of the world in which we find ourselves. Precisely. And I think that means we have to talk about perhaps the the villain of this latest egregious example of the Federation's blatant hypocrisy and anti-working class, anti-radical agenda, Benjamin Sisko. Whoa! Ah! Woo! Oh no! Q, further, what are you doing on my ship? Further attacks from uh, the Federation who don't who want to stop the broadcast getting out to you. <laughs> in, in no way is our episode being interrupted by by events. We're we're in space right now. Space, goddammit. <laughs> we commit to the bet. <laughs> but no, no, I think I think Cisco is a really interesting character that we need to explore, right? I love Benjamin Cisco for so many different reasons. His portrayal of fatherhood I think is really intriguing both both with his actual son and with the you know like DS9 as kind of a child of his. I love his weird position as like like the captain of this outlaw port and and how it stresses kind of the the goodness of Federation morals. But that's kind of what we need to explore, right? Because as as interesting as a lot of those moments are, I think they lean too hard into it. Um, a great a great example of this is the episode for the uniform, and it because it ends so Cisco is hunting a fellow member of the Maquis of ours, Michael Eddington, and in order to catch him, Cisco commits to being an evil Federation captain. He commits to being what the Maquis see him as, and he does that by using biological weapons on Maquis colonies in order to get the Maquis to evacuate and, and cede that space back to the Cardassians, right? They're weapons that specifically do not affect Cardassian biology, but are devastating to humans. Um, and so he's, he's, like, he's, he's like gassing civilizations to, to, to capture a one dude and it's it's completely disproportionate. It's completely ridiculous. And Cisco's in this position a lot throughout the course of DS Nine. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There, there are there's so many fan articles where where it's like enumerating the war crimes committed by Benjamin Cisco. 
But let's 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 talk about why, because we could we have to talk about the fact that the great failure of Cisco is really one of the things that people like most about the character, which is the commitment to a kind of Federation ideal. And if the show is about anything, it's about the constant failure of that ideal to live up to its own propaganda. Because you are, let's, you are let's, absolutely correct. Let's be clear. Let's be totally clear. Cisco arrives in a re- at a revolutionary conjuncture in history, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, at a moment when the dispossessed, working class, the poor, have come to a point of revolutionary consciousness. And what's needed is a militant organization of commitment to the event of revolution. But actually what Cisco provides is a public spectacle of you know, liberal martyrdom in order to ensure that the status quo gently reforms and makes more palatable the violence and oppression that have created those conditions in the first place. You are absolutely correct. And, and I think that, so, so the reason, the reason why Cisco doesn't want to intervene, the reason why in try his character, he stays so hands-off um, is, is because of the prime directive, right? Which, which has a sub rule called the temporal prime directive, right? One of the Federation's guiding principles is that they do not mess with the events of a civilization that is pre-warp. If you have a warp drive, they're fully willing to engage with you. If you do not have a warp drive, they remain hands-off until you get one. Mm-hmm. And, and we see throughout the course of all of Star Trek that countless civilizations die out entirely because they don't have a warp yeah, drive. absolutely. Federation and doesn't we, share its technology. No, and what we see what we see here is that they also let they're they're willing to let their own past die because of this, right? They're they're willing to not intervene internally right but because of some commitment to non-intervention it and i think it but because you know we can have a serious conversation about the prime directive as kind of a rule right is it right to intervene and impose value systems on like like a pre-industrial civilization right those are my favorite prime directive episodes where they meet civilizations that are pre-industrial yeah totally and, and and like, is it, would it be right for them to be like, hey, here's medication that you conceive of as the work of gods, you know, like, let me fundamentally advance your civilization by thousands of years and reinvent it completely. But even that has implications built into it that reflect our world's Western colonialism. So like, this is, this is an incredibly complicated issue, but I think one of the problems is that like, uh, it's fake and it's a story and it's kind of serving a larger narrative of it's ideological non-intervention because they're willing to break this whenever it's convenient for the sake of the Federation. Yes. But they, but, but, but they stay completely hands off like, and watch entire civilizations die when it's not. So it, it is wholly self-serving. Yes. Cause what's needed in that moment is sometimes, sometimes this is the thing that, that Cisco paradoxically doesn't get which is that sometimes revolutionary is revolution is necessary that's as as simple as that mm-hmm. as simple and as complicated as that um but that's not something that the kind of 
pluralistic liberalism of of the the utop the utopia of Star Trek is in its liberalism, right? In its in its like uh, commitment to a kind of capital L liberal value. But that's something that a liberal idea of politics can't. Revolution is always a it's it's always a problem. It's always a disaster. So what's ne- needed is never revolution. What's needed is the constant reform towards ever greater perfection. Mm-hmm. So and like think- that that's the oh, problem with Cisco in this, right? That's the problem because he arrives and becomes a revolutionary leader that refuses refuses the event. Yeah, and I think this is really telling in terms of the the depiction of Trek itself, right? You know, because like we 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 don't have the moment where like we we don't get to spend a lot of time on the ground on Earth watching humanity solve the problems that Trek starts with solved. Yes, the the the, yes, the show starts at this moment that is not yeah, which not is quite which is communism, but but yeah, it, it's a terrible shame, right? We we have a moneyless, classless society that has kind of. Su- superseded the 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 struggles of race and gender and ability, even though those issues still show up in the show because it's being made by people who haven't superseded those issues. But in tra the logic of the world, it has, and we never see that how that moment comes to completion. Yeah, how those fights and struggles are won because they're going to be won by the dispossessed. They're not going to be gifted and handed down and and solved easily. Yeah, and rights, the show rights are never awarded. In. Rights are never yeah. just given. Rights are won, and it's like it's a it's a shame because uh, I love the I love the show, and I I honestly really love Ben Cisco. Oh, I think <laughs> yeah, but but I think this expresses a lot of the shortcomings with the kind of nineties utopianism of the show's production, mm-hmm. which is like. Yeah history has kind of ended and anyone who's talking about something as grand as like history or revolutionary revolutionary necessity is kind of like a dangerous lunatic like like eddington like the marquis yes yes any anyone anyone who's kind of questioning accepted order has gone too far right like like they're 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 an affront to something and they're an affront to something that is a history that has been defeated like the great victory of the Federation is that they have defeated history. Yes. Like there, there, there is only ever an eternal present of, of an, as you said, ever perfecting Federation of planets. There, there will be no future events that change that. There, there will be planets that join. There'll be planets that leave. But the Federation is eternal. Its shape never changes. And, and that is absolutely reflecting the kind of like Fukuyama mindset that directs a lot of Cisco's greater arcs as a character. Uh, Fukuyama mindset. Fuki, yeah, Fukuyama mindset. My new book on how to be- <laughs> how to become a Sigma Alpha Superman, and I don't know what what do those books do? Clean your room. Uh, sounds like sounds like the worst one of all of them. But <laughs> um, well, should we should we talk about should we talk about then the Havens? Should we talk about? Uh, how this show presents the 2020s. Yeah, yeah. And like, let's talk about what it's actually talking about because the writers of the show openly admit that they're talking about Richard Reardon, then mayor of LA, and the, yep. the quote-unquote fenced-in havens that Reardon was, I guess, advocating for as a solution for homelessness in the city. And this was to, to literally fence in and create camps for the homeless. I mean, this is what, this is what 
you know, we're getting at when we say that this show didn't predict anything, right? It just showed, this is, this is the whole point. Prediction is not the issue. What's the issue? The issue is like, where are you now? Right. What are you, what are you facing now? And if anything, it's vision of 2020 or 2022 is pretty accurate, but it's probably pretty like forgiving. If anything, like the standards are so much more punitive. There's so much more just casual prejudice towards the, those who uh, are, are unhoused or those who mm-hmm. are even struggling with housing insecurity. Like this, this didn't predict anything. It just kind of diagnosed something that was, as, as Mike Davis pointed out, something that was already happening in LA and had been happening yep. in, in, in LA specifically for a very long time. I, I, I completely, I completely agree. Right. And, and I think the, the show didn't predict it because the show fails to predict the, the kind of like scope of, of the terror. Yes. You, you know, because this, the, the show posits a world wherein the homeless live in squalor, but they have a, a place that is not going to be randomly swept away by the police. Yes. Or, or someone isn't going to like. Literally like, try and hose them off the streets. Yes. Yes, ab- absolutely. And there's, there's not going to be a, a YouTube influencer who's got millions of subscribers walking around their homeless encampment going like, like I just saw a guy sell a hundred thousand dollars worth of fentanyl and and this place is a death trap and and you can never like I wouldn't go into a major American city with my children unless I had a gun, you know, like fear mongering just for clicks on their YouTube channel. Like there's not somebody walking around with a selfie stick doing that in front of Benjamin Sisko. Yeah. You know, like the, you're you're absolutely right. The, the, the show is trying to posit a, a reality based on what it sees and what it sees is not the future we have. I mean, if anything, if anything, what it's um actually weirdly weirdly on the money about uh, is the ways in which poor and working class communities are frequently excluded from government from from like the positive exercise of 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 the state yeah so like in 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 kind of wealthier communities like the roads get fixed and you know mm-hmm. the lights come on at night whereas the only government functions that if you that if you're poor you get to see are the police and they're not there to help. Yep. They're there. They're there as a kind of like disciplining force. This is not a bad episode, right? I, I think I'll come out and say this because the shape, the shape of Maki Raider Radio as as an Elseworlds podcast that we could be doing is is one that's inherently hostile to kind of the passivity of the Trek fandom writ large. But what what I will say is that there, there, you're absolutely right. There's there's a limitation in how the show dreams utopia coming into existence. And and it, because it doesn't, it doesn't have that dream. It go, like it, it goes straight to, to <clears throat> utopia as nowhere. Yeah, yeah. But I know, I know you wanted to talk about Jadzia Dax. Well, I'm I'm super curious with what happens with Jadzia in this episode. Um, super, super, super smart, incredibly educated, kind of a product of history, mm-hmm. uh, and. Jadzi is enormously passive in this episode, written very into into passivity, uh, and yeah. I just think it's such such a strange choice when so much of the rest of the episode is about exploring the question of agency of what can people do in really yeah. rest- restricted circumstances. 
because in a way, Jadzia is put into this world of like bourgeois kind of comfort, mm-hmm. um, and which has its own restrictions on agency. But it's like, what what agency can you exercise, right? What what do you think? So one thing that I find to be really interesting is that like I I don't like a lot of Jadzia in this episode, and Jadzia is one of my favorite Trek characters of all time, and and it's because like Jadzia never takes shit. Jadzia is is literally standing up to Martok's family when when she marries Worf, right? You know, she she has the strength of character of of what like like eight or nine lifetimes, you know, thanks to the Dax symbiote, and like is so willful and strong and assertive. Yes, and in this one, she's she's almost put in the position of a damsel. Yes. You know, to, to to be rescued by the rest of the crew of Trek while while the evil Baron keeps her kidnapped. It's it's very retro and it's very odd. It almost feels like it was like a, a holodeck play, you know? And, and and you know, she oh we're we're doing the holodeck play for a classic damsel silent movie, and oh no, the computer goes awry. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. it, it feels it feels so strange to to see Jadzia in this role, you know? Any any final thoughts? Yeah, so I think I think if I had to have a, a a final thought, like a wrap up thing, and also kind of like a question for for everybody, everybody like more more broadly is I think if the show does something good, it calls into place our position in history, or calls into question rather our place in history, and that's if if we're in a moment where we're looking out in the world and we're seeing conditions worse than what are depicted in past tense, and we're waiting we're waiting for our Cisco. You know, you know, we're all sitting at the bus stop having circuitous and overly complicated conversations while we're waiting for Gasisco. But um, <laughs> but like, I, I think that in a way, the time between when this episode came out and watching this episode today is really calling us in, into the conversation because now we're in the position of the time traveler. We are from the future looking back at the moment of this episode. Right, we we are the rest of the people from DS Nine attempting to save Cisco. We are we are with them temporally now, and I think that that creates a lot of really interesting and complicated problems. Not just in terms of of our read on a piece of '90s pop culture, but also in our analysis of our current moment. W- what about you? Um, I actually really love that. I think that's I think that's a great place to to wrap it. I'm a one track lover. Sorry, it's stuck in my head this whole time. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for joining us for Garth Marenghi's DS9 Star Trek podcast. This is the latest transmission from Maki Radio Radio signing off. Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard.